Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The two Michaels are here, and uh, there are many questions being asked. Among those questions is, what's it like to be incarcerated in China? What happens to you when you're incarcerated in that country? What are the... Uh, One of the circumstances that exist to get you incarcerated in China, they're very different, we hear, to what it may be in this country and in the United States. Peter Humphrey spent two years in prison in China, 2016 to 18, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Peter, thank you very much. How are you? Hi there. Um, Well, I'm I'm still alive. (laughs) Yeah, I know you're battling illness, and and your sense is that that illness was exacerbated by our time in Chinese incarceration. Well, I mean, I was... I was imprisoned for two years um, in China on false charges related to the GSK uh, pharmaceutical bribery scandal. I had been working for them as a due diligence consultant, and they sent me off to investigate somebody who turned out to be the police informer on, on, on their bribery scheme. Um, so that's what happened to me. And yes, um, I experienced extremely harsh uh, conditions of, of, of uh, incarceration and um, the deliberate withholding of medical treatment, which basically caused me to have cancer. And and since my release in 2015, I've been um, uh, fighting with a lot of of, uh, fallout, physical medical fallout from that experience. But I I don't really think I want to put myself um, out there as somebody who has suffered as much as uh, um, the two Michaels have, because I, I really think I have a lot to say about what they've been through, too. Well, please tell us, what is your sense of what would they have experienced while they were incarcerated in China for 1,020 days? They, they certainly will have experienced extremely harsh conditions. You know, li- the light's on 24-7 for the whole of their confinement and, and uh, very poor, awful food, poor nutrition, um, poor, if any, uh, medical um, attention and so forth. Um, and in, in the pre-trial detention centers in China, generally prisoners are, are made to sleep on a hard, rough wooden floor uh, in a cell with quite a lot of people. I know at the beginning they were on their own in, in a rather special uh, form of, of detention, but I think that later on they were in a more normal detention center with those kinds of conditions. In my own case, um, it was 15 square meter cell with 12 people in the cell, and the toilet was a hole in the floor in the corner of, of, of the cell and so forth. And we did everything on the floor. We sat on the floor, we, we, we slept on the floor, we ate on the floor, you know, and so forth. Um, so extremely harsh. And, and, and the block on things like communication with family and so forth, you know, the lack of very direct communication, um, such as phone calls and correspondence, um, in violation of international conventions, is something they would have had to, had to contend with. And, and, you know, they would have been lucky to get some letters in and out through consular visits. And uh, as we all know, those visits were very, limpid, uh, very limited and, and highly obstructed. So they would have suffered those things. But, you know, um, this was a clear example of state hostage-taking by China from day one, which makes it quite different from my case. And I've always argued that this is the only way it could end with a political decision from China's top leader and to a lesser extent from the United States government. And that is what's happened today. Miss Meng could have done a plea bargain a long time ago, but Beijing certainly did not let her do that. So she was 
also, I think, certainly a hostage of Xi Jinping in this situation, but in Canada, in addition, ironically, to the two Michaels being hostages in China. And I think it will now be interesting to see whether there are any other quid pro quos coming out of this, such as a lightening of U.S. pressure on China in other areas. But I don't think there will be. I think we're still on a course of confrontation between China and the West. Another thing that stood out for me in, in this case was Vina um, Najibullah, She's really the kind of person that every family with somebody arrested in China needs to fight their corner for them. You know, her dedication, her persistence, her discreetness, her, her intelligence, the way she operated behind the scenes was very, very special. And uh, I think um, she, she, she is owed great congratulations for her effort. Uh, but for the two Michaels themselves, it's easy to clap and, uh, and celebrate the release of prisoners when they're released from these kind of conditions but their suffering and their ordeal will last for a very long time they will have been very very badly damaged both physically and mentally by their experiences and i think we, we need to keep that in mind and keep them in our prayers because it won't be easy for them uh, returning to a so-called normal life that will take time it's also not the end of legal battles because on the u.s side we will continue to see Huawei prosecuted, even if it's not personally uh, Miss Meng. And for the two Michaels, they can consider taking legal actions against the Chinese government for false imprisonment and multiple forms of abuse. And I think they should also register their cases as cases of arbitrary imprisonment at the UN agency in Geneva that covers this issue. You know, there are many other foreigners, too, imprisoned in China on false charges, including Canadians, other Canadians, some we know about and some we don't. I personally know of several arrested in the same month as the two Michaels whose cases remain covered up, including one from the United Kingdom. So, you know, this sort of idea, ordeal, this sort of ordeal is far from over with the release of these two brave men. Um, we're going to see a lot more trouble uh, from China in cases like this going forward. There's another case uh, that Canadians need to be aware of, and I spoke about earlier on this program with the former Premier of British Columbia, and that's the case of Ronald Schellenberger, who is a British Columbian, or a Canadian citizen from British Columbia, who is currently under a death sentence in China. He was under a life in prison sentence, and then an appeals court uh, increased the uh, penalty, to, uh, to death. What are the chances, Peter? Is it likely, is it possible that China would move forward uh, with, with, a, with a death sentence or not? First of all, you know, I mean, it very clearly was also linked to the Huawei case because uh, the timing when Schellenberg appealed and, and then the Chinese judicial authorities suddenly escalated his sentence instead of um, listening to his appeal and just saying no... Um, uh, giving him a death sentence instead of a, a, a prison sentence. That was timed in the whole space there around the Meng Wanzhou and, and the two Michaels thing. It's clearly linked. And um, I, I'm sort of mentoring a number of families from various countries who have a member of their family on death row in China. Um, and Schellenberg is not one of them, I must say. But I'm mentoring a number of them. And... and in my experience, foreigners who, who are given the death sentence most of the time don't actually see the sentence implemented. They may be kept in a horrific state of suspense for quite some years before 
um, the sentence is commuted to a life imprisonment sentence. And I know of four or five cases like that at the moment uh, involving Americans and people from some other countries. So China could possibly um, do something to commute Schellenberg's uh, death sentence. Especially, you know, I, I think this needs to be raised by your government because it's very, very clear to me, as, as someone who's been watching China for 46 years, it's very clear that um, Schellenberg's death sentence was actually part of the tit for tat coming out of Beijing against Canada over uh, Meng Wanzhou's arrest. Okay. What was your worst day of incarceration in China like? You know, I have to say, Roy, I think every day was my worst day in some respect because, you know, you could never, you could never see light at the end of the tunnel. And until my very last day, I didn't dare to tell myself that I was being released. I would only believe it when I touched ground in the UK. Um, so every day was my worst day. But I, mean, I was very worried about my um, prostate condition. I knew I had this condition and I knew that they were you know, deliberately withholding um, examinations and, and treatment because um, they, were, they were using this as a method to try and force me, to pressure me to sign confession for a crime I hadn't committed um, and thereby validate you know, their arbitrary uh, incarceration of me. And I came to a, a, a serious state of despair where, you know, knowing my prostate cancer situation, um, I thought I might die in prison. I mean, I didn't know how long I was going to be in there at that point. And so I started to sort of work through in my mind ways I could try and mentor and prepare my son, who was 18 years old when this happened, for something like that, you know, being the ending of this story, um, you know, through communication with my consul and through letters that I was eventually able to write to him. I was trying to mentally prepare him um, to deal with me perhaps not coming home alive. Uh, maybe that was the worst day. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.